Welcome to the London Writing Guy podcast. That intro was brought to you by Money underscore Beats on Instagram, so head over to his page for more of where that came from. That's M-U-N-N-Y underscore Beats. This is the audio version of my conversation with Dr. Thomas Fletcher, who I spoke to almost two years ago now. Dr. Fletcher works at Leeds Beckett University. He's also a passionate advocate for race equality and social justice. I came across Dr. Fletcher's works when I was doing some of my early research for this blog and some of the ideas I wanted to cover, but I decided to speak to him directly. A lot of his work covers the ideas of English identity and nationalism, as well as relationships between cricket and migration. More recently, Dr. Fletcher has done some great work on the area of online hate in football. So if you're interested in any of that, head over to toihf.com. That's an acronym for tackling online hate in football. So that's toihf.com. Like I say, this is the audio version of my conversation. So if you want to read the write-up, which includes a few different thoughts and viewpoints, head over to www.londonwritingguy.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you do and want to be kept up to date with any new content, make sure you subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure you're following London Writing Guy on Instagram for any further updates. But for now, I will leave you with this. During the Black Lives Matter movement, the conversations around Black Afro-Caribbean and players from the Asian background, South Asian background being within the English domestic game uh, was lacking. And so that conversation started up. George Dobell was talking about it and Annie Chave was talking about it. I just chimed in and kind of asked them to think about uh, factors from a generational perspective. So like my parent generation then feeding down into, into me or my generation. Um, and they kind of took that on board and actually got a few replies. And I got talking to Annie Chave about it and she then wanted to speak to me about the topic but the more I looked into it the more I delved into it I then came across a lot of your work and one of the interesting things was a lot of your work around the topic goes way back to like the mid-2000s and and 2013 2015 2016 so like a quite a few years back from from what I can see and I've been reading it actually I've been reading a lot of it and I've got some some of your papers like written uh, printed out and kind of notes on and stuff and uh, I was going to try and piece together something that amalgamates all of your work and all of your research, but I thought, you know, why not try and reach out to you and actually speak to you about it and maybe like what led you into it? Why are you? So that's probably a good, a good one to start off with. What did get you into it when you did start writing up your papers and researching the topic? I think, to be honest, it came by accident and it was something that, um, well, I applied for a PhD, clearly. Uh, I applied for a PhD on something that was completely different to what I did a PhD on. Um, and it was ju- the, the original PhD was going to be around uh, English national identity. I seem to, I seem to think I mean, it's a while ago now. Um, and I, I was accepted on that basis and then starts to read it, you know, starts to read as you do about it and became a little bit more sensitized, I think, to ideas around race, uh, ideas around, you know, national identity, nationalism, et cetera. And it was at that point that I then started to kind of look at myself, uh, literally look at myself and kind of see who I was, and then more figuratively look at myself in terms of my practices and, and what I actually do and how I spend my time. 
Um, and in so doing that, I started to look at other people and the, the types of people that I spend my time with and the types of things I, you know, I spend uh, my time doing. And obviously cricket was the thing that I'd want to do my PhD around anyway, around, you know, in Englishness and, and cricket. And there was various stuff in there around, you know, challenging notions of Englishness and the diversity within Englishness and things like that. And so I started to look around whilst I was, you know, whilst I was playing cricket and looking at the people I'm playing cricket with. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm starting to realise all of these people are white. And, you know, I'd, you know, I'd played cricket to quite a high level. So, you know, I'd gone through the kind of Yorkshire pathway and I'd played county mm -hmm. cricket up to, up to 21, up to the age of 21, mm -hmm. um, you know, never, never properly, but, you know, played all the way till I was 21. And that was fairly diverse uh, in terms of white and Asian participants, never played as far as I can remember with a black player, mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless playing at club level, you know, fairly high standard at club level. I'd not played with within a team with much diversity. And so I went in search for I went in search for that diversity to to kind of get the 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 other side of things to to interview people. And I stumbled across, and again it was completely by chance, stumbled across a Yorkshire-based club. Actually, it was a South Yorkshire-based club, which wasn't an Asian team. It wasn't an Asian club, but it was an entirely Asian first 11 oh wow and that fascinated me because they'd not established to be that way you know you see asian teams and leagues knocking around the place and so they kind of have a uh they have a purpose they've been established for a purpose whereas this team had just evolved <laughs> over the last sort of 50 years or so uh, and at that moment in time, the entire first 11 were South Asian. You know, they were, well, I say South Asian, they were Pakistani Muslim men. The area in which the club was based was still fairly white. There was, you know, the person, the president of the club was white. The secretary of the club was white. All of these people were white. And yet the first 11 were, were, were Asian. And the league that they were playing with within was also predominantly white. So they formed a really, for me, formed a really interesting case study about what it is like to navigate the kind of structures of whiteness. You know, they're playing in a league full of white people, white officials, people running it are white, white, pro, you know, white practices, white normal, normalisation of whiteness. And then here are these 11 Pakistani Muslim men coming together on a Saturday and negotiating that. So that's where it came from, really. I did a, an analysis of the club I was at which was, like I said, these white guys. And then I did an analysis of this other club, which were these 11 guys playing in an otherwise pretty much white league. The two teams were not in the same league uh, or anything like that. So, it's not, so I didn't know them. I'd never come across them. I didn't know what it was like to play against them or anything like that. But it fascinated me in terms of how whiteness was normalised where I was and then whiteness was incredibly problematic <laughs> For the for the Asian guys at the other club, and and that's where the PhD came from, but completely by accident. Was there was there anyone else doing that kind of analysis? Like it, it feels like it was kind of quite a niche thing at, at the time, but I mean, was there anyone else kind of addressing the topic at all? Not really, and I don't think any, and I don't think anybody has since either. I think you know there were various people working within. I say various people. The, the, there was one person that I followed quite closely within the realm of football. Uh, which was uh, Dr. Dan Birdsey at University of Brighton. And then there were a couple of other people that had, had looked at South Asian experiences in football, one being uh, Artie Ratner, uh, who 
is still based at Solent University in Southampton and turned out to be one of my latter PhD supervisors. She wasn't involved from the start. And then a guy called Dr. Dan Kilvington, who's also based in Leeds, and he did his work around South Asians in football. Now, Dan Birdsey, the, the original football guy, did a bit of research around race and racism in cricket, but he would admit that cricket is not his thing. Um, he saw an opportunity based on the back of his football and went into that, produced a few papers and then kind of did what he needed to do and then, and then moved on. But I followed his work very, very closely in football um, and, and kind of applied it within the within the cricket context. And I, and I dare say that if cricket was more popular <laughs> in this country, then perhaps it would have, it might have spurred on more, you know, more interest in the way that football has. Um, but, you know, periodically it kind of crops up and people get interested and then it kind of, you know, goes back into the shadows because it's cricket. So you've done, I mean, going through all of that and timings wise in terms of your, your life and where you got to and did, did that kind of analysis. And I guess, the ECB would have reached out to you at some point because I've seen your name pop up in research or, or topic the South Asian Action Plan potentially. Or... Yeah, no. See, I, no is the short answer. Okay. No, they didn't. They just used your work. <laughs> um, so the 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 work that we did the we we did do some collaboratively did some work uh, with the ECB on South Asian coaches, okay. uh, a study on South Asian coaches, which was a commissioned piece of work. And then we did a, another piece, which was um, which was around again. It was around South Asian cricket that was in Leeds and Bradford, and that was based on the premise of the ECB believed that there were a lot of South Asian people playing cricket that they didn't know about because they weren't affiliated to teams, teams and leagues. They were playing in parks and informally in back streets and that kind of thing. So they commissioned us to go and find out, you know, who was playing, where are they playing. Uh, why don't they play <laughs> in formal teams and leagues and that type of thing? But that, whilst the work is that the findings from that is are clearly embedded within the action plan, I would argue no one writing the action plan ever reached out to us to ask. Hmm. Which is, I'll not say it's, a, I'll not say it's a sore point. It's not yeah. sore. Yeah. Because I can see that the work has been embedded, and so I'm fairly comfortable with that to think, yeah, we made a contribution, yeah. uh, but it wasn't done. It, it was no, we were never consulted over that. Um, we've tried to reach out subsequently around broader work around diversity, in particular, because my argument is to say, well, the, the South Asian Action Plan only addresses South Asians. There's much greater ethnic diversity in this country than South Asians, and we need to tap into that. Um, Unfortunately, like a lot of sports, COVID has completely kiboshed anything that's beyond let's just get people playing cricket. I mean, the, the ECB are looking at yeah bursaries and stuff and, and like role models and talent champions and things like that. Kind of how, how far do you think that goes and how far do you think that kind of that helps? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a it's a really good question. I mean, the, the um, you know, issues of obviously coach funding, bursaries, etc., issues of role models and all, and all those kinds of and, and talent identification were all things that were raised in the research that we did. Mm -hmm. And on that basis, you have to say, well, yeah, they're a good idea then because that's what the participants were, the people we spoke to, that's the kind of thing they were crying out for. There were various reasons why, I mean, particularly with things like um, bursaries. So I'm a little bit uneasy about saying, oh, well, in order to get more kind of ethnically diverse people involved in cricket coaching, you need to make it free because that's, makes some kind of underhand assumption that they're all poor yeah 
which is absolutely ridiculous. It's just one factor, I believe. It's just one factor uh, in numerous. Yeah, and, and but what but what was what became more apparent as we were working was that it wasn't around poverty why people don't actually engage in coaching. It was it was cultural. It was this view that coaching, it's not a career, and therefore why would you pay your money to qualify to be a coach that you're not going to get any sort of monetary reward for? And what we were arguing was that you know that there needs to be a kind of culture shift there to say that coaching. It's not about making a career out of it. It's about making a contribution. So it might be a couple of hours a week coaching young kids at your club. It's not a career. It's about volunteering. But then there were other arguments say, well, actually, in a lot of in a lot of cultures, the idea of volunteering just doesn't exist. If you say give your time up for free, they're like what? Um, Interesting. Never thought about that. Yeah. So there needed to be some education around. Get it, how, how do you encourage more ethnically diverse, in this case with South Asian people, into coaching? And it wasn't so much about saying, well, we'll make it for free because we don't think you can afford it. It was, we'll make it for free so that actually you're not having to make a formal contribution to it. So if you qualify and then you enjoy it, then let's see what happens. But you're not having to commit to anything in that respect that you don't think you're necessarily going to make any money out of in the end. So that, you know, so that was important. In terms of talent ID, we, we there were all sorts of factors around, you know, you know, coaches, scouts, et cetera, don't come to the right places. Again, because there was a lot of informal stuff going on. So part of the challenge was, well, where is where are these young people, not even young people, but, you know, where are these people playing? If they're not in formal clubs and leagues, where do they go? Because there may well be a superstar playing in the park. Well, which park are they at and when do they go there? And, you know, can we tap into that? Mm. Um, and then the other, obviously, the, the issue around role models is, I mean, I'm a cynic around role models, I must confess, because I think, well, you know, w- realistically, what can they do? But in saying that, again, the participants over and over and over again said, we need to see more people like us. Mm-hmm. Young people in particular need to see people who look like them doing what they want to do. Mm. Um, and that would extend not just to players, but it would be to coaches. It would be to groundsmen and umpires and people in decision-making positions on boards of clubs and, and all that kind of thing to show that this is a legitimate pathway for them. It's not enough for people like me, you know, white people to say, actually, there are no barriers. It's like, F- off, mate. Of course there are barriers. Uh, you just don't see them because you're a white man. Yeah, and that's exactly where I come from in thinking, yeah, I didn't see the barriers Mm -hmm. because I didn't have any. Well, obviously I had barriers, but they weren't the same. Mm -hmm. Um, But but there was very much a view that it doesn't matter how often white people tell you that it's all right or how often white people kind of sensitise themselves to those challenges and say, oh, we understand the challenges Mm -hmm. and we're trying to rectify them. It doesn't have the same substance unless it comes from someone who's like them, yeah. looks like them, sounds like them, or similarly that someone that they can look at and say, they understand what it's like to be like me. They understand what it's like to go through Ramadan. Mm-hmm. They know what it's like to have parents like mine, siblings like mine, pressure on me as you know the only boy in the family or whatever. It's interesting. I spoke to um, uh, the his official role is he's the uh, diversity and... As diversity coordinator for Kent Police, um, and he's a he's an Indian Sikh guy, and 
he he spoke to me a lot about a lot of case studies not i mean they're not case studies, they're anecdotal stories of yeah. him having spoken to his officers and those officers being able to take aspects of the sikh and indian like culture see the sikh culture onto the streets talk to potential offenders and then you know break that break the ice with you know cultural references and things like, okay yeah, i know about the good borough the temple etc and, and form yeah. the conversation with, also with the local community as well because it comes from a place of knowledge and it comes from a place of place of lived experiences right so yeah and i, and I think that, that that there is that kind of balance between i, I was talking to um Aaron Kang the other day, who's the CEO of Sporting Equals. I don't know if you've come across Sporting Equals. So Sporting Equals is a, um, you know, it's an equality organisation. It's funded mainly by Sport England, but they, mm -hmm. they put a lot of emphasis around race equality. Sure. Uh, and they, they run like an annual, um, is it a British? It's like an ethnic diversity sports awards. And, and anyway, they do lots of, Lots of work around race equality. And I was talking to Aaron the other day, and he was saying that, you know, lived experience is clearly the best thing you can ever have. To engage with ethnically diverse groups, it's great to have lived experience. If you don't have that lived experience, what you need is empathy. Right. So you need to have a genuine commitment to understanding the barriers and the enablers as well. You know, we shouldn't just focus on the stuff, but how do you get more people to do what they want to do so how do you enable them to do that and in that case you know making bursaries available is one of those barriers so take the barrier away by creating bursaries mm. as long as you're creating the bursaries for the right reasons and underpinned by the evidence then i see no problem in it what i always strive for or what would argue is that none of these initiatives will work unless there is a genuine commitment to them so if you introduce them ad hoc piecemeal uh, and, and they're piecemeal to um, to alleviate tensions at a time or a particular time or to just to put out fires or just to be seen to be doing something because Black Lives Matter kicked off, everybody looked at themselves and thought, what do we do? That won't work. What does work, however, is if you've got people saying, yeah, we need to do this because we've got a genuine commitment to growing the game making sure that everybody has equal access when they have accessed the game that they're then able to actually progress within it you know if they get invited to a trial that they know what's expected of them or they know where to go go to be scouted to be invited for a trial so all of these things that when you're the first kind of person out of the blocks in your family and your mom and your dad and your siblings your aunties, your uncles grandparents if they've never been through this experience they don't know how to, these young people don't know how to navigate it. And so it's creating a system where you acknowledge that and say, right, we know that there are people navigating this for the first time. And for some, those barriers are greater than others. Even if I'm experiencing it for the first time, the barriers to me experiencing it are going to be different. I would, I would imagine to if you were experiencing something for the first time, mm -hmm. because I have a variety of other privileges that I accept. But if the system doesn't accept those privileges and it just assumes, well, you and I are on the same wavelength and we're on the same level because we're doing it for the first time, then the system's going to fail you. Absolutely. And, that's, and your, your point about commitment to the issue itself is, is an interesting one because it's kind of one of the reasons why I really don't like the idea of a quota system within uh, companies and, and you know employers 
and then quite system for the for employees to make sure you know they have the right number of people from a particular background because it is it's box ticking it's kind of like you say it's 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 peaceful there's no real commitment to it with like you know it's it's the the need to understand the issues at hand uh and like those lived experiences is for me is is key and it's so important but like you say like it's kind of if it's a throwaway initiative to just be seen to be doing something i think that's where that's where they, they'll falter and it, it, it comes across as in it was the word in yeah, disingenuous, yeah. Yes, yeah. and i think yeah. and i think a lot of it seems to me that a lot of people seem to think that you know whether it be asian people or black people would turn around and say yes any initiative to get more people like me in those organizations or playing at a particular level or whatever would be welcomed and actually most of the work i've done you know those same individuals have said exactly the same as you no you know that they you know because it still has to be the right person for the job absolutely what they object to though is that sense that there will be the right person for the job somewhere and then they still don't get the job yeah, uh, yeah because the system works against them but that is fundamentally different to creating opportunities and giving it to the wrong people True. just because of this color of their skin or their religion or whatever one of the things that come i came across in in your works and and something that i found really interesting was the idea of resistance and south asian you know resisting the cult the english culture and and the idea of cricket uh, and englishness and typical englishness uh, and relating all back to the colony which is a whole deeper darker kind of subject which again i do want to potentially talk about or address but do you think the 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 resistance to Englishness or, or feeling like, you know, uh, say like for me, my generation, for example, and feeling like they're, they're not English enough to play within the, within the English domestic scene. Do you think that that disappears over into the, like, as generations go on? I think that would be a fair assumption that as, as time goes on, those kinds of, um, differences become diluted particularly as you know many of the people I spoke to and it did depend by generation but of course you know whether they're educated in an English school you know makes uh, as opposed to having migrated post-education and therefore gone into you know dead end, not dead-end jobs but you know gone into fairly menial jobs whether it be as a shop worker a taxi driver factory worker etc their experience is very different or perception i should say seemed was very different compared to that generation of people i've spoken to who clearly were either migrated very very young or were you know born and educated in the uk where they experienced diversity every day mm. um and you know they had you know friends from a variety of different backgrounds and i think that i would like to think that these things will dilute as well as my kids see more diversity in school than what I did. And therefore it's not, it's not a weird thing for them to see. Mm. But at the same time, you know, my kids go to a primary school where I don't know how big it is, maybe 130, 140 kids. It's not a big school. I might see four, five non-white faces on a daily basis it's not many mm. and you know when and you it's the way that you talk to the kids about it where you know <laughs> 
you might say, oh, you know, the, you know, have you played with such and such today? Uh, and one of the kids, because they obviously don't know one of those classmates, might say, oh, wh- wh- which one's that? And you think, you know, how do you describe <laughs> that, that kid's the black one without kind of outing that kid as the black one? So you might say, oh, he's the he's the little boy that's got really tight curly hair. Yeah. And then they will say, oh, the one with the brown skin. Like, mm. Yes. Mm. You know, so it's it's... Yes, I think that it will change over time as, as, like I say, as kids become more kind of desensitized to the difference or more embracing of the difference. But it still matters how the kids are brought up. What I found in my work was that there was a kind of shared sense of, well, it's a shared sense of whiteness. When you're in and around people who are like you, you kind of assume that everybody has the same point of view, don't you? Um you know, and if you're and in that's it. potentially one of the issues with, I guess, the English domestic cricket scene in the sense of coaches, CEOs, you know, um, talent scouts and stuff. It, it, I mean, I'm, I'm making a massive assumption here, potentially, but they're all from a particular type of background. They're, you know, potentially all private school and they're, they're in and around their own kind in the sense of, and, and potentially, I think you've even written about this, but kind of seeing someone else, seeing someone that is, not of their upbringing, not of their kind, seeing them as someone else, seeing them as another and seeing them as, right, potentially it's subconscious in the sense of they're not going to fit into this team. So we won't give that kid a, a, a you know, well, you know, they might find uh, something in his game that, okay, they'll use that as an excuse. Okay, you know, we'll, and we'll select yeah. the other one from that yeah. private school because he's likely to fit in better and it it's makes things a lot easier and better for them to manage. It's exactly that, yeah. It just makes it easier, doesn't it, not to have that diversity. You don't have to think about the way you talk to talk to the kids. You don't have to talk, you don't have to worry about what food you serve up. You don't have to worry about when games take place and you know whether it takes place on you know during Ramadan or not, and whether you accommodate that young kid and whether you know how to talk to their parents and whether people know how to talk about race. Mm. And I don't think people do. No. They don't know how to talk about race and they no. find it really difficult to talk about race. And therefore, they just don't. Mm. Um, and they say things, oh, we don't see colour. So, well, you know, perhaps you should, <laughs> you know, um, and, and things like that. And I think that's where that kind of empathy comes from as well to say, well, it's not that's not good enough. Mm. Actually, it's not good enough to to not want to have those difficult conversations Go and find out. Go and learn about that family, um, but do it in a do it in a sensitive way that's not identifying them as different. Mm. When people ask, you know, will the South Asian Action Plan work? Is it a good, you know, is it a good thing? Righty right. So, well, it's clearly a good thing to have it. You know, you can't deny that. Will it work? I I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, most all sport has been decimated over the last twelve months. But you know, with that engagement action plan the you know the england teams both men and women actually performing well this is the time now for mm. something like for something like cricket black lives matter has continued to put race on the agenda i'm not entirely sure if cricket has embraced that as well as it probably could or should have done though we see in football at the minute there's kind of kickback from taking the knee and whether that's mm. you know whether whether that's an effective tool or not um so you know these things are good to have, but what you need is leadership, committed leadership, and that's so, what all that, it, what you, all it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Because if people at the top support it, then they will take a punt on things. They will take a risk with an initiative or an idea, or they will listen to you. 
if they're doing it as piecemeal, then they will only do what they're kind of um, enforced enforced to do or expected to do under under law. Whereas if it's someone who's passionate about it, then they will push that agenda. That's and a that's very good. What, yeah, that's what sports like cricket need. No, that's a very good point because my, my one of my thoughts has always been you know employers etc. Always, yeah, find, like you say, being seen to be doing something, but will they spend money? Will they spend time? Will they spend employees' hours on a task that isn't seeing a return on and profit as well? Like, is it taken away from companies? top line kind of thing you know it's all about profit as we've seen with uh, the the football super league but, oh my goodness yeah yeah like it's everything is about profit and will an employer spend money on something that you know they're not going to make any money from and it's just going to help diversify like how they you know just and that's this, like you say it's the commitment to to that initiative that needs to be seen and you need to have that empathy towards that that initiative i guess which makes but it. that but that's why they focused on south asians because they were the lowest hanging fruit you know, yes. 30% of people yes. that play cricket are Asian and therefore actually there is a business case. Tickets now T20s, etc. Yeah. Is there a business case for, for, for Black Caribbean communities in cricket? Arguably not. And therefore, will we see the same level of commitment? I don't know, because that's a kind of, you know, that's an investment, well, a monetary investment that you don't know if you're going to get a return on. Mm. Whereas the Asian one, the Asian action plan was a kind of, it spoke for itself to say, yeah, this is a positive investment because this community is growing and therefore this is where we should put our resources. The black community, on the other hand, certainly not growing, or if it is at a very small rate, and therefore whatever investment they make, you were never really sure of what you were going to get out of it. That was my conversation with Dr. Thomas Fletcher. If you enjoyed the conversation, make sure to follow the London Writing Guy podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to follow London Writing Guy on Instagram for any further updates. But for now, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>